put in a four for a fifth bedroom. And every single bedroom I add is an extra like 600 to $700 in rental income. So that increase in rental income is like, like for two bedrooms, that's $1,200 more per month that you could be making. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Ryan Cha, who's going to talk about buying housing in a really expensive market, California, and how he's able to make a profit. But first, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. This weekend, I had a buddy come up from San Antonio. So that was kind of most of the weekend revolved around. You know, we kind of had a night in on Friday, watched a movie Saturday. We did some projects around the house, um, try to get a pergola redone, just kind of on that, that woodworking kick. But then we went out to one of the local spots that, Cody, you got to go to both of them actually while you were in. So we went to Armadillo Den for some live music. And then uh, there was a big UFC fight on this weekend. And uh, I love watching those. So Saturday, night we went over to the parlay house they actually bring in a huge screen for stuff like that so we watched the ufc fights which if you're into that like it was actually not the greatest card until the very end and uh it was like probably the pound for pound best fighter in the ufc gets knocked out with less than a minute to go and he was winning the entire fight so it was kind of crazy spoiler alert if you haven't seen that (laughs) um but that was so that was my weekend cody how about you well, we usually have this one big annual lake house bash, and this weekend was it. And we did a jungle theme, so everyone was forced to at least wear something with animal print on it. Could be your bathing suit, could be your top. Some people went all out. I had a friend who had like this gorilla costume, that, like right around his waist. But yeah, it was an absolute blast. Did that pretty much all day on Saturday. It was a beautiful weekend here in Massachusetts, so we were just kind of hanging out by the lake, enjoying the water, enjoying the sun, and soaking up these unfortunately kind of last few days of summer. I know summer. It's probably going to persist a lot longer down in Austin, Texas, but come mid-September up here, and I'm actually going to be gone for the beginning of September, hanging out with you and James and the rest of the FinCon gang down in Florida. But once we get back, it's going to start getting cold. So trying to just soak up those last summer rays. Yeah, we're just getting to the good part of summer. It's it's starting to... It'll, <laughs> Here in a couple of weeks, we'll start to get away from scorched earth to like, oh, this is nice. And we'll be it'll be nice for several months and, and then it'll get cold for just a minute. We'll have to come visit again. But Justin, I think that's enough about us and what we're up to. Let's talk about the awesome guest we have on today, Ryan Cha. And I've been posting content on Instagram about real estate. And even in Massachusetts, a lot of my friends will say, hey, one of the reasons I don't want to invest here, especially friends out near Boston, the cost is just too prohibitive. Like I can't make money here. This market's too expensive. And that's why I love that we have people like Ryan on who can kind of break down that barrier. He's investing in California. He's since started to expand a bit, but he has kind of gone after this specific niche. I'll do another spoiler alert, student housing, and he's made it profitable by renting by the room and also by finding creative ways to make more rooms out of a property that might have been a two bedroom or a three bedroom. Now it's a four or five and it's become a really profitable business model for him. So For those of you who have thought, you know, this market is too expensive that I'm living in, like it's too prohibitive, real estate is just not for me, definitely give this episode a listen and you might get some real creative ideas about how you actually can make real estate become a profitable venture in your area. Yeah, the parts that stuck out to me were, you know, just the way he talked about figuring out which towns he wanted to invest in, because obviously he had been investing in California primarily, but now he's looking to branch out in like Texas and other places. So it was interesting learning like, okay, well, how do you go about picking the college town that you're thinking about? Also, how do you go about finding those tenants? Because obviously it's a, it's a different world you're working with. You got multiple 
different people living under the same roof. And so he's got his prime method that you can listen for in the episode for finding those tenants, which I I thought was a cool little add on. So if you know someone who maybe is looking to get into real estate, but just hasn't done so, because like Cody said, they think the area is too prohibitive cost wise, or also Ryan has like a free kind of starter PDF that you can get access to. And all that can be found over at thefyshow.com slash chaw. That's thefyshow.com slash C-H-A-W. Take it away, Ryan. I always knew that real estate was one of the best paths to wealth, especially because I had a grandpa I was inspired by. He bought a couple of properties in the Bay Area back in the 50s, so they're cheap. And then he basically became a millionaire over the next two decades or so, a couple decades or so, just holding on to those properties and renting them out. Not only that, the rental income was able to help pay for his retirement, early retirement, and for my brother's tuition and my uh, college tuition as well. So I realized it was one of the best ways to create generational wealth. I was actually inspired to do student housing from one of my friends, actually, who did it in college. He basically lived in one room and just rented out to the college roommates. And I was like, why not do this as soon as I can? So I wanted to get started as soon as possible. 2016, I bought my first property. And then I bought one property a year by reinvesting the cash flow, reinvesting some of the equity using a line of credit. And yeah, now I'm at six properties, closing on the seventh one at the end of this month. And it's making me $18,135 per month in rental income. Obviously, I had learned a lot of lessons along the way. The first lesson is don't buy a super old 100-year-old house because I lost over like $30,000 on that house. And we can get into the details later. Those are kind of the inspirations. There's one more thing, actually. One of my fellow pharmacist friends, he retired at 65. He hated his job. And you know he was just there for the paycheck, he would say. And three months later, he died. So I was like, whoa, my God, this guy died. He worked all of his life at a job he hated. And then three months later, you know, he only enjoyed three months of retirement before passing away from a massive heart attack. So I realized, okay, I don't want to be somebody who works all the way until I'm 65, the same job, W-2 job, and not have any more impact on the world. The craziest part about that story is shortly after, like a couple weeks later, it seems like he was pretty much forgotten. Like everything went on business as usual. And I didn't want to, you know, be the type that would work all the way until I'm 65 just to be forgotten a couple of weeks later. And you mentioned during your story, like some of your background that about some like college investing or learning someone in college. Could you like, were you actually buying properties while you were still in college? And love to hear more about like how that came to be. I really wish I did because properties back when I was in college in 20. 10 to 2015, they were in like the hundred thousands or low 200 thousands. But I unfortunately didn't start purchasing until I graduated in 2016. But if I were to go back, I would have probably done a house hack and maybe have like a parent co-signer or something like that for the loan. So let's talk about the very first deal. What year was this just to kind of lay the land? 2016. And I basically purchased one to two properties every year since then by leveraging my equity on the property and by leveraging, obviously, reinvesting that cash flow. Okay, so 2016, are you a full-time pharmacist at this time? I'm just trying to get like where the down payment come from. Like, How did you get the funds? How did the strategy come to be where you're renting out to students? All that stuff. Yeah, so I pretty much like a lot of entrepreneurs have a grind story as well. I basically work two pharmacy jobs. I worked at a retail pharmacy and a hospital pharmacy. So I was working 
I did double shifts. So I would uh, get in at 7.30 a.m. and leave at 11 p.m. I did that for a bit, <laughs> sometimes six days or seven days a week. Then I'll work in hospital in the morning, maybe go to retail in the afternoon, vice versa. And so basically I grinded out to get as much capital as possible because I knew that would put me in the best position to acquire real estate and get in the game. Although I didn't know at the time, I could have probably used partnerships and all of that. Just to get my feet wet, I really wanted to have my own capital to be comfortable investing without having to use too much leverage. And what did you do to educate yourself, like to feel like you had the confidence and the know-how to pick the right deal? Because I know most of the time people say like you make your money at the purchase, whether you got a good deal or not is kind of the make or break. So how did you feel good about the investigation that went into buying a place? It was faith, actually. It's more of faith than anything. When I bought my first property, I had no mentorship. I had nobody to talk to. I saw my grandpa did it. I actually didn't talk to my grandpa about it at the time. Basically, yeah, I just had faith in the asset. And so I put my money there and it basically made me a millionaire by the time I hit 28, just by my properties appreciating in value. So you kind of hinted at this earlier. You mentioned you lost $30,000 on your first deal. Could you explain to us like that's a lot of money and that might scare a lot of people away from making a similar mistake. So could you kind of lay out what happened? Well, they're all preventable mistakes. For instance, the sewage line broke on me about eight months after I purchased the property. And the sewage line to replace the whole line costs about $9,000. What happened is this tenant gave me a call around midnight and he was like, oh, dude, there's like sewage coming out of the kitchen sink. It's all over the floor. It smells like shit. Part of my language, it literally was. <laughs> there is also some sewage coming out of the showers too, back now the shower drain. So that was really gross. And I had to get cleaners to go out there, you know, at midnight. It cost extra, of course. And then we stuck a snake with a camera down the pipe and we found that there were roots sticking into the pipe because the pipe was like an old cast iron pipe and there were like these huge trees. The roots were just sticking right in and it broke the pipe actually. I have pictures of it. And so we had to replace the whole thing for $9,000. Not only that, I didn't realize the house didn't really have an AC system. So I had to put in a new AC system after I purchased the house. And some of these things I could have easily just known if I've done this before, you know, I've been able to look at, okay, how old is the HVAC system? Is there an HVAC system? How old is the roof? I could do a sewage line inspection during the escrow. So I would actually have seen all the roots sticking into the pipe. And I have been able to negotiate more with the seller to say, hey, you know, this is the state of your house. Can we have some credit towards closing costs or credit towards repairs? So, you know, at least I don't come out of pocket $30,000, right? And my future investments, first thing I did was not buy 100-year-old properties because that tends to happen for those older properties. You just have to budget a lot more towards repairs. And the second thing is, of course, I do all those inspections to make sure everything's pretty good condition before I purchase the property. And so from the things you learned in the first property, what did that second one look like and how long after that first one was it? Because like Cody said, I mean, I could see... After you get burned a little bit, like that could kind of sour your taste on it. But did you get right back into it or was there a bit of a... I did have this point where I was like depressed and like wondering, is this going to work? Because I knew my grandpa did it, but it didn't seem to be working for me at the time. But I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep doing it just because I know the rental income is coming in. By that time, I 
fully occupied the properties. And I also had the idea, and this is what helped me scale, is I, I had the idea, let's put in some extra bedrooms. Let's buy some like three bed, two baths, put in a four for a fifth bedroom. And every single bedroom I add is an extra like 600 to $700 in rental income. So that increase in rental income is like, like for two bedrooms, that's $1,200 more per month that you could be making. Like for five bedrooms, I started getting around $3,100 in rental income while my mortgage payment was around $1,300 or something like that, $1,400 back in between 2016 and now. So yeah, I basically started making like $1,000, $1,500 in cash flow per month, net cash flow in California. Well, now I'm actually investing out of state to make even more cash flow. But California is great because obviously the appreciation is very high. So just quick clarifying question. So you weren't house hacking, you weren't an owner occupant. These are straight up investment properties that you're buying like 20 or 25% down, right? Exactly. But the fifth property I purchased was owner occupied. So the one that I'm saying, and now I'm actually renting out the other four bedrooms and it's making about $3,650 per month uh, while I'm living in the master for free. My mortgage payment on this house is $2,300 per month. Okay, so going back to properties one through four, though, you're not living in the house, you're renting it out by the room to college students. You must have a pretty rigorous screening process, I'm guessing, or else you probably have a lot more nightmare stories to share with us. You know, let's kind of go back to that first house. Like, how are you marketing? What platforms were you using? How are you vetting whether or not you wanted this you know, college student to rent out a bedroom from you? It seems pretty scary at the time. Yeah, definitely. So I have a method that I kind of developed throughout the years. It's called the prime method. P stands for placement of advertisements. So you want to place your advertisements in front of the student where they're going to be hanging out. So it could be like Facebook housing groups. It could be like Facebook clubs, club groups. It could be like Craigslist, roomies.com, all that type of stuff. Basically, I'll place my ad there. And most of the people who are interested in my rooms are going to be students naturally. I also invest near top colleges, usually on the U.S. News top colleges list, because those are the colleges that usually the students are very well-rounded. They have a very high GPA. They're very studious, all that type of stuff. The R stands for reviewing social media. So I'll look through like their Facebook profile, Instagram, anything out there, maybe LinkedIn. And I'll see like, is this a type of person like posting pictures of partying all the time? Do they smoke, drink alcohol? do drugs, go to raves, that type of stuff? Or do they have a pretty professional profile, right? I stands for identifying the type of tenant. So this is based off your communication with the tenant. If they are very needy, they seem to be asking for a lot of things before they even move in, or they get upset very easily. Those are some like red flags that will stick out to me. So I will probably choose a different tenant. M stands for measure responsiveness. The more responsive they are to me, like if they're getting their paperwork back to me in a timely manner and they're, you know, very responsive, they're also probably very responsible as well is what I find. And then finally, E stands for ensuring proof of income. So it's actually not the students usually paying the rent, it's the parents. So getting the bank statements from the parents and the credit score from the parents, or sometimes if it is the student, they'll take out student loans for room and board financial aid, maybe they have like a job or something like that. They have multiple ways to bring in that income to aid for the rent. So making sure that they're able to pay it. And yeah, that's it. That's how you find prime high quality tenants. And as you continue to grow this portfolio of investment properties, like you mentioned now, like, okay, this is how we're 
kind of qualifying the tenants, but for managing all of this, like bigger picture, as you continue to have more and more accounts, I don't know if you just have like some tools that you use or recommendations for making this more streamlined, because I think everyone's hope when they get into this, that it's as passive as possible. Exactly. Yeah. So it's very important to have the system and tools in place. So I have a protocol in place for like, if a tenant complains about another tenant, I basically have a copy and paste email for that. As far as when things happen on the house, you know, you can also use some software like tenant cloud or rent ready, where the tenants will put into the software, something is broken, they'll shoot a message to your handyman or your contractors. I also have like a huge list of contractors in case uh, or contractors and handymen in case something happens to the house. So I can just forward the text message to them or give them a quick call. But yeah, eventually you can either use software to systematize this whole process for yourself, or you can even hire a property manager and give them the system that you created and train them and then have them manage it. And just to get a glimpse of the delta between if you were to rent this thing long term, just throw it up, this entire house is for rent versus the buy the room. Do you have some concrete examples you could share with us? Yeah. So most houses in Stockton where I invest, the average three bedroom, two bathroom house that I purchased like 1500 square foot rents out for about 2100 or less, like 1900 to 2100, depending on the square footage. But what I'm actually making, if I make it into a four bedroom, it'd be more like 26, 2700. And I rent out each bedroom for about 650 to 700 per room. And then sometimes I'll get a couple in there too. Like they'll share the room and then they'll pay maybe 30% to 50% more. And so I'll get like anywhere from 2700 and then for five bedrooms, it'll be around 3100 up to like 3600 for this one in Sacramento. Let's just take this one in Sacramento, for instance, right? The mortgage payment's $2,300. i am making $3,650 in rent. So that's $1,300 Delta. And I'm also living in it for free. So if I rented out this room, this master bedroom, it's very large. I could rent it out for about $900. So that'd be about $2,000 per month in cash flow for the current one in SAC. And a lot of the ones at Stockton is around $1,500. But even better if you go out of state, like one of my clients, we're actually partnering together on a house and we made $4,450 per month on that house while the mortgage payment was around $1,700 or something around there. So that's about at least $2,500 in cash flow net. And one thing that's obviously different in those situations versus ring out long term is you have different people and different leases like coexisting in the same space. Have you found that to be an issue or do you feel like that people just kind of know what they're getting into and it's actually not as big of a problem as you might expect? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. 
shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. Yeah, so that's actually brings up a good point. So make sure you check with your local city first. Is it okay to do rent by the room model? A lot of them are okay with it, but some of them will have ordinances against it. So you wouldn't be able to invest in those cities. But yeah, as far as lease agreements, what I do is one year lease agreements, and they're allowed to sublet it to somebody else during like summer school, for instance, by only offer a minimum of one year lease period basically August to August, and in between, I'll end the lease on July 31st. And then basically that covers and makes sure that I have back-to-back leases so I don't have any vacancy. So kind of going back to the screening process, and like Justin said, you're going to obviously run into conflicts when you have, like, say, five different people living in under one roof that don't know each other. I know you use the prime method and you have these certain checks when it comes to like figuring out if the student is the right person. Is there anything you do in terms of like, asking them to fill out an application or just like clarifying questions? Or are you kind of doing all of that work on the back end using the prime method? Well, one thing I want to do is I try to put all the pharmacy students together, like basically people who have the similar classes. That way they can all study together and share study guides together and help each other out. So I'll have like a pharmacy house. I'll have like a dentist house. I'll have like an engineering house, that type of thing. But I do kind of try to match them up to based off of their majors and personalities and all of that. As far as a tenant versus tenant issue, I would say at most it happens like once a year at most. Actually, it's not as common as as people would think. But basically what you do is you send them an email saying, first off, they'll complain. And then you'll send an email saying, hey, go ahead and talk face to face with the tenant that you're complaining about. Have that conversation, come up with an action plan. And then implement the action plan. And then over like the next two weeks after that, if you're still having issues, you can come to me. And like pretty much every time that I do that, they've never come back to me after those two weeks. I don't hear from them again. And you have to realize it's not your responsibility, right? It's actually their responsibility to resolve that conflict because one, you're not even living at the house. And two, you can't like tell the other person what to do. You don't have any control over their actual actions. So you can probably say the same thing that the tenant would say, but it's up to them to resolve it. And with you being in California, I'm assuming you're pretty familiar with those locations. But as you start to partner with people and to invest in out of state, how are you kind of qualifying those markets or how are you finding the areas where you want to target to move into? Great question. So top colleges, I'll start with like the US News top colleges report. I also look for areas where the median home price is like $315,000 or less, kind of like on the lower end, so that cash flow would be much greater. And I also look for areas that have houses with very super high square footage. For instance, the one that I'm buying now is in like Lubbock, Texas is 4,100 square foot. And we're putting an offer for $310,000 on it. Now, Texas has higher property taxes and all of that, but this is a 4,100 square foot. So this could become like an eight or nine bedroom property, again, making anywhere from $4,000 to $4,500 in rental income. With the mortgage being, I have to run the numbers, but let's just say like $1,800 or something like that, or $2,000 or more than that. I mean, it depends on the rates, right? but still like at least 2000 in cash flow on that house. So something you just said there was it could become an eight or nine bedroom. So it sounds like, you know, even if it's not with every property, you're thinking about putting some kind of rehab work into the properties, whether it's adding a bedroom, maybe just making the bedrooms nicer. 
Do you typically have a budget for that? Like, do you go into a property, this percentage of the purchase price, or, you know, it's this, this amount of square feet, this is how much I have set aside for the rehab, or how do you calculate that? Yeah, so for adding the bedrooms, it's just 1500 to maybe $2,500 per bedroom, because wow. essentially what you're doing is just putting up some drywall and a door right and just sectioning that area off sometimes you don't even need to actually add a wall you just repurpose that room so a lot of the places i buy they'll have like a second living room or a family room or a bonus room or an office or a den etc right or a library and so basically i just put in bedroom furniture into the house and boom that's a bedroom essentially right so i don't even have to put up any walls for that. But yeah, for a lot of the houses, I'll like go ahead and put up a wall and it'll cost like 1500 to 2500. It's not super expensive. And you'll probably make that money back within just a few months from the rent from that additional rent from that room. This may be a little bit of a fringe question. So no problem if you don't know this answer. But I'm just curious as I'm thinking about mm-hmm. this, like, you know, you look on the MLS, you, you see a house that's a three bed, two bath, and then all of a sudden, like it's going to turn to like a five bed, two bath. Like, what do you have to do in order to get it reclassified for the correct number of rooms after you've changed it? Definitely check with your planning division because they're the ones who will be able to answer that question. What kind of permits you have to pull, that type of stuff. And it depends like on the city as well. So you have to check with like planning and then building and just make sure everything looks good to them. Like, if you, have five bedroom houses in that neighborhood or around that neighborhood, you're likely fine. Or if you have like six or eight bedroom places around that neighborhood, you're likely okay as well. So at the time of this recording, you're still a full-time pharmacist. I know we're going to talk about kind of your exit strategy, which is very soon coming. But at this point, you're a full-time pharmacist. You're self-managing you know, six units in California, soon to be a couple more units around the country. Can we kind of dig into the team a bit more? I know you mentioned you have this rental property software that like tenants are sending in requests. Sounds like you have a team of contractors on the other end of that who might you know get the request either directly or through you. I'm guessing maybe mm-hmm. you have someone showing the properties or maybe you're still doing that. I just kind of want to run through what a full team looks like for someone who's listening, who has a full-time job and really wants to get their feet wet, but they don't want to dedicate a ton of time to this. Yeah, so definitely there's like, I would say four main types of people you want to have. Obviously, the real estate agent, you'll want to choose an agent who basically works with other real estate investors, or maybe they invest themselves, because that way they know exactly what you're looking for as a real estate investor, and they can kind of run the numbers and pick properties that will make sense for you. Also, I give them my criteria, like very close to the house within five minute walking distance. They know exactly what I'm looking for. And then you have to find a lender in the area. So depending on where you invest, right, if you invest out of state, you need to find a lender who's able to lend to that state. So I do some digging. Usually I look for like local credit unions. I'll actually call them and see what their rates are, because sometimes they're a little bit more flexible compared to the bigger banks but I will check like various sources. There's like UWM, United Wholesale Mortgage. I've used a lot. There's a lot of other lenders out there like Loan Depot. You can just go to any bank. And what you want to do is compare rates to find the best rate, right? Second one's the lender. The third one is obviously the contractor and the handyman. So handyman are great for like smaller projects, like replacing a broken washer or dryer or something like that. And then for bigger projects, you probably want to use a general contractor who has like a GC license. And the last fourth person is 
it's optional, you know, hire a property manager. And obviously the fee is like eight to 12% or so of your rental income, but it could save you a lot of headaches as well if you don't want to self-manage it. What I do though is use like the software method, right? I think everything can be done remotely. I work 32 hours as a pharmacist, but I'm still able to self-manage. I think 30, I think I have like between 30 to 34 tenants right now, something like that. I don't even know all their names, but basically it's, you just have a system for everything. And uh, if you want, you could hire a bookkeeper for the bookkeeping and then have the software for handling the rent and repairs and all of that. And it seems like since you're able to handle this while having a full-time job, like it's not that big of a burden, but do you see yourself continuing that as you continue to grow this portfolio and you continue to look at retiring? Do you see anything changing there? Do you see like offloading any of that responsibility that you currently do yourself? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'll probably eventually hire like a property manager just to manage the ones in Stockton. So when you start taking on partners, which is what I'm doing, you want to actually start having a lawyer involved with that because you want to create a contract with your partner to make sure you guys have all the boxes checked. Like what's your exit strategy? What happens if one somebody dies? What if I die? What if my partner dies, right? How does that work? So you want to start bringing in an attorney. The other thing is, especially if you do like a syndication where you pull a lot of investor capital together, you start having to face SEC regulation, Securities and Exchange Committee, right? So you have to have a special lawyer for that. It's called a securities lawyer, right? So those are some things you want to think about, especially when you scale. Obviously, have a great accountant. Actually, I probably hired an accountant after the first or second property because there's a lot of things that you didn't know you could deduct that you can't. For example, just a quick one, right? Let's say I'm going to Hawaii, right? Maybe I'll have some fun there. Maybe I want to look at some properties there. Maybe I'm prospecting for properties. If I shoot an email to one of the agents there and we are going to meet and see properties, well, all of a sudden, a lot of that becomes a business trip because in order for me to see that property as an ordinary and necessary expense, I have to fly down there. I have to have a hotel. I have to have meals, right? So all of that starts becoming deductible as long as it's ordinary and necessary for me to prospect or purchase a house down there. So just things to think about. <laughs> just contact an agent or ever you're going on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So I want to dig into this partnership thing because I think a lot of people romanticize the idea of a partnership and they'd love to, whether they don't have the capital, they don't have the time, usually you find a partner that can kind of supplement whatever you're lacking. So how have these partnerships kind of fleshed out, like what was the person on the other side of that partnership looking for that you had and how did you end up finding them? Yeah, so I've done like two different types, 50-50 partnerships. One of them was actually with one of my clients. So I actually teach people the student housing method. We could talk about that later. But yeah, she did so well in that market. So we decided to go ahead and work together on the next couple properties in that market. So basically it's 50-50, 50-50 for the upfront what do you call it? down payment, upfront renovations, closing costs, everything like that. Then we also split profit 50-50. Now, the other way you can do this is more of like a general partner versus limited partner. The limited partner puts up the capital. They're not involved in the management process or the day-to-day. -day. They're basically just putting up a capital and they expect a return, right? And so for both of them, actually, I should say, you want to have a strong bond of trust, right? So for me, I partnered with somebody I worked with for several months and 
we work very well together. And then the other one is my uncle, actually. So great relationship with my uncle. We see each other like several times a year. So yeah, we just naturally partnered up because he saw what I was doing. And what are some of the things that you've learned that weren't obvious to you kind of going into it? I mean, I know there's the like, you know, you want to have a lawyer so you can make everything straight, but maybe a couple little things that you came across that because you'd never done a partnership before you were, you never even thought about. Yeah. So like when you syndicate, for example, you really have to face those SEC laws. So one thing you have to do if you take a whole bunch of partners under a syndication to buy like larger properties or to buy multiple single family homes, however you want to do it, you have to do something called a PPM, a private place memorandum. I think that's what it stands for. But it costs like at least $12,000 to $15,000. So before you know, you take on that much capital, you really want to make sure you have a strong method, you have a good system so that you know you're not panicking when something goes the wrong way, right? And you're not borrowing more than you can make from your investment. So there's just a lot of just intricacies with the tax laws and with the lawyer. So you definitely want to hire out for all those little things. And like I said, for my accountant, there's actually something really interesting that I just learned. You can take bonus depreciation. Like, let's say you buy like a million dollar property, bonus depreciate part of it. Let's say you bonus depreciate $150,000 or $200,000 the first year. Well, if you are the active manager of that and nobody else is managing it, like you are doing all the management work, basically you meet, it's called a material participation test. So there's like seven tests for that. And if you meet that test, basically it's considered active losses. So now you can deduct your depreciation from your active income because it's considered an active loss. So my active income is, you know, my job as a pharmacist, I can potentially not have to pay as much taxes on my pharmacist W2 income. And I didn't know that before my accountant told it to me. So that's why very important to get a good accountant and a good attorney, they could literally save you more than tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh yeah, 100%. And for the listeners, what Ryan is talking about is being classified as a real estate professional in the eyes of the IRS. So just go and Google that and do a bunch of research. We could do a whole episode on that. But yeah, it is so cool, Ryan, that you're right. You can offset your active income with depreciation as long as you hit one of these seven qualifications. I do want to get back to the partnership thing. So just to clarify, is your uncle and the person you've worked with for several months are they boots on the ground in the locations that you're investing in? Or are you both like in Cali and just investing from afar? Yeah, we're both just investing from afar. So it's really important to build that team. Just basically get a list of contractors, you know, get a list of agents and lenders and just put it all into an Excel sheet. That's what I do. And then basically have those people that you can count on and contact for when something needs to be done with boots on the ground, like you said. So where are you getting these lists from? That's what I was curious about. If there's no one boots in the ground, like it's really hard to trust people like, okay, this contractor is good. I got these five recommendations. You know what? Let's go with this company and just close your eyes and pick one. I'm sure that's not your process, but you know, where right. are you kind of getting these lists from that you're you know, then dialing down into your top two or three? Yeah. So basically for the list of contractors, I go to the real estate agents and then I'll ask them, hey, do you have any contractors that you can highly recommend. And what type of work do they do? Maybe they do HVAC, maybe they do, you know, flooring or whatever, right? The other thing I would do is, of course, cross-reference them. So I'll Google their name. I'll look through the Yelp reviews, the Google reviews, 
whatever their website says and, you know, testimonials and things like that. And I'll also ask the person who sent them to me, why did you refer them to me? And I'll ask them maybe some more detailed questions about the type of work that they do. Other than that, you can also go to your neighbors as well. So like, I try to always get one of the neighbor's numbers at least. I'll have like my agent go ahead and get their number so that I can call them if they have anybody that can help me out on fixing up my house or doing those renovations. And yeah, just everyone you ask, you want to ask them for a referral for somebody else, right? So that's kind of how you build your network. So like contractors come through agents and neighbors. You might ask your agent also for lenders. You can ask local property managers as well who they use. So yeah, just kind of just build your network and then cross-reference all your uh, all your people. Speaking of kind of like building a network, I'm curious, maybe you haven't had any trouble finding tenants, so maybe you haven't done this, but have you ever experimented with like tenants who you had a really good experience with, like offering them some kind of bonus? Like, you know, hey, if you refer somebody to me that signs a lease, you get a hundred bucks and let them kind of advertise for you. Oh, yeah, definitely. What I call it is reaching a critical mass. Basically, when you reach a certain level of tenants in that area, you pretty much don't have to worry too much about marketing and getting tenants anymore. Because what happens is, first off, a lot of them will stay if they enjoy your property, like 50% of them will stay. And then the other like 25, 30%, they'll come through referrals. So they'll say like, hey, you know, I know I'm leaving, but I have three friends that are interested in the house. Or I'm not sure if you have any more openings, but I have a lot of people that I know that are interested in off-campus housing to save money. So if I multiply the number of tenants I have at the house, let's say like, I mean, that area 30 by like, let's say they each know four other people. Well, that's 30 times four is 120 prospective potential tenants that might want to stay at your house. So nowadays I would say only like, I don't know, five, 10% of my people that live at the house came through my marketing, the rest just came through referrals. And as you continue to grow and expand, I know you can kind of hit using the word critical mass again, when it comes to getting just conventional loans, like banks don't want to just loan to a singular person. Like at some point, you probably need an LLC, you need to start taking out business loans, commercial loans. Have you started to dip your toes into those waters yet? Or are you still just the straight conventional train? Right now, I've been able to do conventional once you get to 10 properties, they start shutting you off from that. So you have to start going more of the portfolio route where you use a portfolio bank that provides portfolio loans, or you can do like DSCR uh, loans, where basically the rental income from the property that generates will qualify you for the loan. But yeah, there's other types of non-QM type mortgages out there that you can look into. But the next step, I would say, is probably just go the portfolio route after you hit 10 properties. Usually, you won't run into issues until you hit around 10 or so, from what I hear, at least, right? Because the debt-to-income ratio actually kind of decreases using this method because you have so much cash flow. So you're always going to be qualified for a loan. But then once you hit 10, Fannie Mae kind of shuts you off. So you have to go the other routes. Well, since you're having so much success with this and it's you're able to manage it with your full-time job, I'm just kind of curious because I know it came up earlier that you're looking to quit your job in the near future. What made you make that decision? What do you kind of plan on doing with the time you free up? Just kind of curious what that next phase looks like. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I think kind of living the dream that people want to live when they try to go for financial freedom, right? So the whole point of buying this real estate is so that I have the choice to eventually retire when I want to. I didn't want to end up basically what happened to that pharmacist working at a job I hated or, you know, got tired of doing for 40 years, right? And then dying or not living a fulfilling life, right? I want to look back on my life and say, hey, you know, this guy lived a very happy life. I want my family to, you know, see that this guy say of me that I lived a very happy life. It was a very fulfilling life. It was a life of great impact to the world, a positive impact to the world. And so that's the reason why I'm retiring next year in July around 31 years of age. So what I'll be doing is actually helping others kind of pursue this path using the student housing rent by the room method. One, because it makes so much cash flow, like $1,500 to $2,500 per month, right, on a typical single family home. But two, because I want to help others be able to achieve their full potential. And for me, I get a lot out of pharmacy. I help a lot of people, right? But at the end of the day, I had bigger dreams. I want to make a bigger impact on the world. And so, yeah, that's what I'll be doing next year. I'll be quitting and then I'll be teaching others how to do this, which I'm currently doing now. Well, for those in our audience who want to learn from you, you're already teaching, where are some of the best places where people can get in contact, check out some of your resources and get started with this student housing thing? Yeah, so I have a free PDF guide about the student housing method. You can get that at www.newbierealestateinvesting.com slash guide, www.newbierealestateinvesting.com slash guide, and newbie is spelled N-E-W-B-I-E. Awesome, Ryan. Well, thank you so much for giving us the time. And it's definitely an interesting form of real estate investing. I know we've covered a lot of real estate investing on the podcast, but this idea, specifically marketing towards these college towns and even adding rooms to houses. That's a really cool idea. So I appreciate you coming on here and kind of educating the the audience. Oh, yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, I think it's a very powerful method. And that's why I'm just putting it out there. I mean, most people can, I shouldn't say this, but I do believe that most people can retire in real estate in five to eight years, somewhere around that time frame, especially with this method. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.